So we are continuing, everybody awake? Everybody awake now? We are continuing our series uh, through Summer in the Psalms. So we're looking at every single psalm this summer. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we did an introduction to the book of Psalms last week. We looked at the different categories of the psalms. Uh, this week we're going to be focusing on uh, Psalm, let's see if I can get this to work here, Psalm 1 and 2. Because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve as a... This is basically a second introduction. They, they will be an introduction to the whole book. Psalm 1 will be a, a wisdom psalm of how we can be wise in the Lord and how we follow the Lord. Psalm 2 will be a messianic psalm, looking to the Messiah, looking to the Son, Jesus. And so we'll see how those connect and how those set forward the tone for the rest of the book of Psalms. And the title of today's message is Finding True Happiness in the Son. Finding True Happiness in the in the sun. And I want to read just real just start start us off diving in to Psalm 1 starting in verse 1. Psalm 1 verse 1 says, "How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So just in this first couple verses, I want us to see this, the man who is happy, the one who is blessed, the one who has true inner joy. This is not a temporary external happiness that can be taken away, but this is true internal joy, a blessedness, a happiness only that can come from God. And I want to look at it from three different perspectives, namely three different perspectives for the Christian. For those who believe in Jesus, you can, I, I read this psalm and I see three different things in there. First, we see it first from a we look at the past, the past perspective. Because when you look at Psalm 1, I realize that my life did not always look like this. That my life did not always delight in God. I did not delight in the Lord's instruction. I did not stay away from sin. That was my past. And then we see our, our present. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we look at the present and we read Psalm 1 and say, Yes, because Jesus saved me from my sin... I can delight in God. I don't have to walk in sin any longer. This is my present life now. But then you also realize, as you're looking at your present life, you say, I'm not perfect. I don't delight in God's word perfectly, and I don't walk in his ways perfectly. And so that looks us towards the future as we are continuing to be more like Jesus. And it makes us look even towards the further on future when we'll be perfect in heaven. We'll be given glorified bodies where we can say Psalm 1 and we say, yeah, I lived that life perfectly. That's what we look forward to, where we can say, I delight in God perfectly. So we see the past, the present, and the future of this Psalm 1. Past, we were walking in wickedness. Present, we are saved from our sin and delight in the law of God, but not perfectly. So that makes us look towards the future. And so now we're going to look at the details of Psalm 1 and make some applications of what we can do with this psalm, what we, how this psalm should change us. 
And along the way, we always need to be looking towards Jesus, looking at how Jesus has changed us and saved us, which Jesus will be the main topic of Psalm chapter 2. So first, Psalm 1-1, let's look at it more closely. It says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Notice here the term walking. And then we'll, we'll move into he's, he's walking by, he's moving along. And then secondly, he doesn't want us to stop and stand in the pathway with sinners. And then we move to the progression of now you're not just standing, you are sitting in the company of mockers. So we see first, the first thing we see in Psalm 1, 1 is this progression of maybe you just walked on by sin. And you may have turned your head and looked, but then he doesn't want us to fall into deeper sin and standing in the pathway with sinners. And then finally, he doesn't want us to wake up one day and say, we're, we're sitting in the company of mockers. So we see this first, this progression of moving deeper and deeper into sin. So we need to stop sin at its beginning. And the key question here and the key question of Psalm 1 is... Are you happy? Are you, do you have true joy in your life? And if you're not currently happy, what would make you happy? If you had a new job, would you be happier? If you had more money, would you be happier? If you had better health, would that make you happy? But then what if all those things were taken away? So we know that true happiness cannot be found in those things because those things are just temporary we, can't, we don't have no control over those things. We need a different kind of happiness. Everyone's looking for something deeper. We're looking for something that will change our life, to give us something to live for. And the book of Psalms begins by showing us this different kind of happiness. Happiness not dependent on our external circumstances, but on being rooted and being right with God. The first time this word happy is used in the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. It says, How happy are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. And so the first time the word happy is used, it is to describe who? The people of God. And why are they happy? Because they are the people of God. Because God saved them. And it continues to say that God is their shield that protects them, the sword you boast in. Your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread on their backs. God is their protector. He is their savior. He defeats their enemies. That's why they're happy. The next time we can look at this same idea and same word is used in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. It says, therefore, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a just God. All who wait patiently for him are happy. Those who are patient with God, those who wait on the Lord, those who put their trust in God, those are the ones who are truly happy. Those who receive mercy from God, those who receive his compassion, that is where true happiness is found. And if you are a part of God's people, if God is your God, whom you worship, whom you trust in, then he will show you the way to live. And you will follow his ways. We see this in the next couple verses in verse 21 of Isaiah. He says, let's see. Verse 21. 
It says, whenever you turn to the right or turn to the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. So as a Christian, as a follower of God who worships Jesus and God, we have this, this, uh, this promise that he will show us the way. When we start turning from the path to the left or turning to the right, we, our ears will hear, this is the way, walk in it. And where do we learn the way of God? We learn part of it in Psalm 1. As a follower of Jesus, as part of God's people, we want to walk in his ways. And what is the way we should walk Again, it's very simple. He puts it here plainly. Happy is the one who does not do what? Walk in the advice of the wicked. He does not stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. So two things here I want to point out. First, we see that there's a caution for us of negative influence of others. Being with others, causing, bringing us into sin. So we need to be on guard and see that true happiness is not found in relationships or friendships with those who encourage you to sin, who say, come do this with us, that would lead you away from God's path. Instead, true happiness is found in relationships that encourage you to follow God's ways. Now, what this doesn't mean is that you should not have any friendships or that you should not have any relationships with unbelievers or with sinners. Obviously, we see this in Jesus' own life. The perfect son, the king, our king that we follow, he befriended tax collectors and sinners. We see this in Matthew 9, verse 11, because the Pharisees, um, they saw this. They asked his disciples, why does your teacher, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners. So why is Jesus being with people who are sinners? Didn't, they, didn't he read Psalm 1-1 not to associate with them? Well, he's not joining in with their sin, but he's trying to get them out of their sin. We see this in verse 12. Now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So if you have a friendship, if you have a relationship with someone who's an unbeliever, someone who is deep in their sin, who are not repentant, don't join in with them in their sin, but be as Jesus calling them out to heal, to be saved from their sin, not join in with their sinning. And then the next basic truth of this verse of verse one is that true happiness is not found in doing evil. True happiness is not found in doing evil. Now, as a follower of Jesus and someone who studies his word, you'd be like, of course, Josh, why would we want to do evil? We know that evil would not bring us happiness. We may know that fact, but do we always believe it? Do we always act on that? Because sometimes we buy into the lie and think that if we do evil, fill in the blank what that evil might be, that then we would be happy. Let me give... The first example of this is in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3. The first sin, God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their God, their creator, showed them to way, the way to walk. Don't do this, he says. But they wanted happiness in their own way. We look at Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 6. But before we do, 
I do want to make sure everyone's awake and to not miss the main point. In order to remember and keep your memory, I want you to turn to your neighbor and repeat after me. Say, true happiness is not found. We almost got it. We'll try, we'll forget the screens. Sometimes, you know, technology can mess us up. Starting from the beginning. True happiness, True happiness. is not found, is not found. In, doing evil. in doing evil. All right. That's the main point I want you guys to get from Psalm 1. Now, to illustrate this, and from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, they wanted happiness from another way. We see this. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. So even though God said, don't eat of it, she said, but it looks good. It's delightful. That's where I'm going to find happiness. It's desirable for attaining wisdom. And so she saw that it would make her happy. She thought that it was going to be good for her. So she took some of it as fruit and ate it. And then she also gave some for her husband who was with her and he ate it. So we don't normally... We don't do things that we don't think would make us happy. We do things because we want to be happy. We, want, we find some satisfaction in it. They thought doing this evil thing, disobeying their God, would bring them good things, would make them happy. For us, it's not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't have that temptation. That's not our thing in front of us. But it's all other kinds of evil. For example, we look at our bank account. We look at our bank account, and then we look at the tax forms, or we look at our a church member in need, and we say, mm, it'd probably make me more happy not to be generous. <laughs> it'd probably make me happy to maybe fudge the numbers on my tax forms. That would make me happy. And so we, in that moment, we buy into the lie and think that we will be happier if we do evil, if we are not generous with our money, or if we lie on our taxes. Again, we need to be reminded that true happiness is not found in doing evil. We have to trust God in this, that he knows what is best for us. And it's not doing evil things. And the first step of pursuing happiness following Psalm 1 is to realize and admit that we have already done this. Admit that we have sinned. Admit that we have even given wicked advice at times. And that we not only uh, walked in the advice of the wicked, but yes, we gave wicked advice. And Jesus picks up on this idea of true happiness in his Sermon on the Mount. Because he, he points to us that we need to admit that we have fallen short. In his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3, he, said, he uses the same word, happy, blessed. And who are the blessed ones? Who are the happy ones? They're the ones who are poor in spirit. That is, they are recognized that they are spiritually bankrupt. They realize they can't not offer anything good before God. They don't have enough credit in their bank account to buy a ticket to heaven. You can't earn God's forgiveness. You have to recognize that you're a sinner. And he says, when you recognize that, when you recognize that you need God, that you need his mercy, that you need his help, only then can you begin to be happy. The same idea is found in Psalm 32 verse 1. The same word, how joyful or how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You can't begin to be happy unless you admit that you're a sinner and, and you have that sin covered. 
And you begin to see those things that, for what they are, those evil things, that, those sins that don't bring true happiness. Lying, selfishness, pride, revenge. They don't bring true happiness. Instead, what does? Psalm 1 verse 2 Your delight should be in the Lord's instruction. Your delight is in the law of God. And you meditate on it day and night. Delighting in and meditating. There are two sides of the same coin. If you delight in God's word, you will want to read it more. You want to meditate on it. You'll be thinking about how does this law of God apply to my life? And then as you meditate on it more, as you read the scriptures, then you'll start delighting in it more. And verse 3 describes what this person is like. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Here we see the poetic imagery of what it looks like to flourish, to grow, to produce fruit. He is a healthy, strong tree. He is sustained by flowing streams. He is rooted in God. He is rooted in the word of God. So when hardships come, and they will, so we'll see in in the rest of the Psalms where King David and other people will be crying out to God and saying, help me, my enemies are against me. So there's going to be a sense where even though everything that this man, this blessed man will be prospering, he'll be happy, that doesn't mean hardships won't come. But he'll be rooted in God, he'll be rooted in the faith, he'll be rooted in God's word. But the the wicked are not going to be like this. Those who do not delight in God and his word. Those who do not admit that they are a sinner. Psalm 1 verse 4 says the the wicked are going to be like this poetic imagery. It says the wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. That means that they don't have any fruit. They're useless. The wind just blows them away. A hardship comes and they're not rooted in anything. When, if they lose their job, if they lose a family member, if they lose their health, they aren't rooted in anything. They just will blow away. They have no, they have no lasting true hope. And it says, verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand up in the judgment. So not only will they not be able to stand when life circumstances come, there will be a day in which final judgment will come. And God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, the wicked from the righteous, and they won't be able to stand up in the judgment. They won't be able to stand up before God and give a case because they have no argument. They won't be able to stand the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. There are two paths. The way of wickedness and the way of righteousness. Righteousness meaning those who do right. Those who follow God and his way. They'll be separated, the wicked and the righteous. And so we've, we've talked about how there are, uh, in this life today, you can find true happiness, true blessedness in following God's way. But in contrast, we know that this will be the same for eternity. If you don't follow God now in his ways... You won't have happiness for eternity. There are eternal consequences for our actions. And so at this point, you might be convinced to pursue happiness God's way. But you also may be somewhat worried. 
You might be thinking, Josh, I've done evil. I still sin. What if I'm not righteous enough to be in the assembly of the righteous? What if I'm not good enough to be in that in crowd, right? But we've already mentioned none of us are righteous enough to be in that in crowd. We, none of us on our own merit will be righteous. None of us are perfect. All of us have sinned and don't deserve to be there. But by the grace of God, he can transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And as we see God's grace and his power and justice in Psalm chapter 2, because as I said, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 go together. The way we become part of the righteous is we'll see we're trusting in the Son, delighting in the Son. And it begins with the question of Psalm chapter 2 that leads us into our need for Jesus. Psalm chapter 2 verse 1. It, it moves from the individual blessed man now to the whole world, to the nations, to the peoples. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So while the blessed man is happily meditating on God's word, we see these people are meditating. That, same, that word plot there, the people's plot in vain, could also be translated as meditating. They are thinking of ways to rebel against God. And unlike the happy man who will bear fruit by meditating on God's word, these people that are raging and rebelling against God, their rage will be left empty. It is in vain. They will, be, they will bear no fruit for this. The reason why they're raging and rebelling is in vain is because who are they rebelling against? Who are they raging against? Who are they plotting against? Verse 2, they are plotting against the Lord. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. They can fight against God all they want. They can rebel against him. They can do what they want all they, their whole life, but it won't take God off his throne. Their, their plotting is in vain because God is all-powerful. He is their creator. He cannot be, his plans cannot be thwarted. Even though they are kings, even though they have nations and people under them, they can't be a match against the Lord. We read in Psalm 2, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Can you imagine them trying to dethrone God and God just like, what are you doing? I'm laughing at you right now. The Lord is not a mere king of a nation or on earth. He's the king over all the earth. Enthroned in heaven, he sits on the throne and laughs at those who try to dethrone him. In contrast to the rebels in Psalm 1-1 who sit in the company of mockers. Remember, they're mocking each other. They're laughing at people. In Psalm 1-1, now we can say, look who's laughing now. And notice in verse 2, they not only try to fight against God, but they fight against his anointed one. That is his Messiah, the king. In the Old Testament, the anointed one referred to the king of Israel, the king of God's people, but what do we see in the Old Testament? Time after time, even King David, the greatest king of Israel, fell short. Fell way short. <laughs> Sinned terribly. They were always looking for the ultimate king. The eternal, perfect king. And this is fulfilled in Jesus. The anointed one is Jesus, our king. We see this in Acts 4, verse 25. It says, 
You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Quoting Psalm 2. And then here's the interpretation. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, that is the nations, the Gentile rulers, the kings, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all the nations right now are in scope. And what did they do? They assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the one who everybody rebelled against. Jesus is the one who they tried to dethrone. They even crucified him. But the good news is they're plotting against Jesus. They're even killing him, did not dethrone him. The way to the throne for Jesus was through his sacrificial death. He willingly went to the cross. That he is our king. And you would say, well, why did they rebel against the king? Why did they rebel against Jesus? Why did they want to do this? We see in Psalm 2, verse 3, as they were rebelling, they say, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. They wanted to be free. So they thought that they would get freedom if they threw off the chains and ropes of God. Now, it's kind of sad to think that they saw God's law and they saw God's way as chains and ropes. They thought it was something binding them down. But in reality, God's law is not a chain or a rope, but a guide, a, a way for true happiness. But they just saw it as a restriction. They wanted to throw off God's law. They wanted to throw off the chains and the ropes. And so that's ultimately why they crucified Jesus. They, did, they rejected him. In Psalm 2, 4, even though they rejected him and tried to throw off the chains, we see that they, he, they don't ultimately win the war because, again, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules, him, ridicules them, and they will face judgment because he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. And God confirms that Jesus is king, even though they rebel against him. Verse 6, the Lord declares, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is a picture of Jerusalem, the temple, the, the Zion, where he, we, he reigns over the whole earth. They cannot dethrone the king no matter how hard they try. He is installed as the king. And now we will get to hear the king speak. Imagine the next words as the king's first speech. The king's declaration of comfort to his people and also a strong word against people who oppose his kingdom. So here is the king's speech in Psalm 2, 7. It says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So Jesus begins here, the anointed one, by declaring what kind of king he is. He says, I am the son of God. I am the son of God. And we see this picked up again in Acts chapter 13. We see this fulfilled in Jesus at his resurrection. We see he says, God raised him from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead. 
And he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. So he's getting to the promise of Psalm chapter 2. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. What did he fulfill by raising up Jesus? As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. At Jesus' resurrection is the announcement that Jesus is the Son of God. And let me be clear, Jesus didn't become God or become the Son of God at his resurrection, but it is announced. It is made clear to everyone that his kingship is officially beginning. Jesus has been the Son of God. He is God from eternity past. He was with God at the beginning. He, Jesus, God called him his son at his baptism. He called Jesus his son at his transfiguration. But here at his resurrection is a magnificent historical moment where Jesus is announced as the son of God, the king. It is the kingly event of Jesus' resurrection. It is the announcement of what has always been true. And because Jesus is the son of God, the king, he declares the judgment to come on those who rebel against him. We see this in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. So all the nations, all the world will be given to the Son. The ends of the earth will be your possession. And because he owns it all, he will have authority over it all. And those who rebelled against him, what will happen? Verse 9, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. There is no one that can escape the judgment of the king. All the nations of the earth are under his authority. It's his possession. And the purpose of this declaration of judgment, the reason why the king tells the people this, why doesn't he just go and shatter them? But he says, I'm going to tell you what happens if you keep rebelling. Why do I tell you this? Verse 10, he wants them to listen. It says, now kings, be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or literally kiss the sun, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Listen, he tells them that judgment's coming because he wants them to find refuge, that they can be saved. They don't have to stay in their rebellion. They can come to the king who they rebelled against, who they mocked, who they even crucified, and they can find refuge in him. They can find forgiveness. This, 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 these verses are the key to Psalm 1 and 2. These verses are the key to the entire Bible. These, these verses are the key to Christianity because it's not about being good enough. It's not about punishing yourself for your sin. It's about taking refuge in the sun, seeking shelter, seeking protection, seeking salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is not some new idea brought about in the New Testament. This is promised in the Old Testament and made clear and fulfilled in Jesus in the New so when Jesus, the Son of God, the King, came into the world, He is our shelter. He is our salvation. What is He our shelter and salvation from? And Matthew one twenty one makes it clear that He came into the world that says His mother will give birth to a son, 
And you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus came to save us from. While we have enemies of sickness, enemies of death, enemies, people, physical enemies, people against us, we have enemies of our life and struggles and everything else. And while we find our shelter and our trust in Jesus in all those times, as we'll see in the Psalms, no matter what the situation is, find our shelter and our salvation in Jesus. But the ultimate Savior, the ultimate shelter, the ultimate enemy that we need saving from is our own sin. And without being saved from that, you won't find true happiness. That is the call to all rebels. That is the call to myself, who we, everyone here, we were all once rebels. We were all in need of a Savior. And he calls us to trust in the Son. Don't try to be good enough to earn forgiveness, but trust in Jesus. This is the picture of Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, when it says, pay homage to the Son. Literally, kiss the Son. This is a, a sign in a, sim, in a symbol in the ancient world where you would submit to a king. You would say that, to the king that I am yours. I am your servant. You, I need your protection. I will do anything you say. I submit to you as my king. And what does it look like to find refuge in the son, for him to be your shelter, to be your salvation? What does it look like to submit to the son as your king? Verse 11 says, it, it begins with serving the Lord, serving the Lord. You need to act out and live out what you say you believe. And how are we to serve the Lord? It uses two adjectives here with reverential awe, or you could translate it as fear. Now, God loves us and he's merciful and compassionate and he is our good father, but he's also our king who we have a reverential fear, respect where we submit to him. And we also, in the, in the next adjective, uh, is rejoice with trembling. Because he saved us, because he's our refuge, we rejoice, we praise God. It's so interesting that he praises it the way that we rejoice. Even in our rejoicing, we tremble. Even in our rejoicing, there's a sense of fear and awe and reverence and respect. So we, I think that we need to definitely remember that when we come and praise God and we, in serving him, there's this element of reverential fear and awe as our king. So if you've never found refuge in Jesus, if you've never been saved from your sin, let today be that day. And that's the start of true happiness. If you presently trust in Jesus and you're delighting his word and you're living in reverential fear and submission to God, continue in the faith. Continue that. Grow in that. Serve God. Serve others. And I want you to pray four different things this week. First, I want you to pray, God, help me delight in your word. Help me delight in your word. Second, I want you to pray, God, help me not delight in evil. Help me not delight in evil. And then third, God, help me turn to you as my refuge. Help me turn to you as my refuge. When times get tough, when things come in the way, don't let me find my refuge in something or someone else, but only in you, God. And then fourth, God, help me serve you. Help me serve you, God. So those are the four prayers this week. And also, each week, I want us to read a, another section of the Psalms. So if you read about 15 Psalms a week, 
You can read the whole book, 150 Psalms, by the end of our series in 10 weeks. So this week, I want you to read Psalm 16 through Psalm 30. Psalm 16 through Psalm 30 this week. And be reading through Psalms. Be reading God's Word, delighting in them. So with that, we're going to have uh, Kay and Mark come up and play a song of response. And in the song of response, I want you to, to praise God for what He's done in your life. And if you've never have had refuge or if you want me to pray for you for something that's going on, a tough time where you can find refuge in Jesus, I'd love to pray with you today. So let me uh, lead us into that time of response by praying for you. God, I thank you for your word. God, I, I ask that your word dive deep into the hearts of the people here, that we would all leave here uh, changed, that our minds and our hearts and our emotions would be transformed to be conformed to your word, that we would delight in you, that we would delight in your word, that we would not delight in evil any longer. God, help us find refuge in you, in you alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.